You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay. I know you came to hear them and not me, so I'm going to be really brief. Yeah. Thank you all so much for coming out to Borderlands on this contentious election night. I figure that if we're here, we're not all staring at the TV and we can't do anything about it anyway, so glad, glad you could make it. Just a quick request that you please silence your cell phones. I always forget. I want to make sure everybody remembers. And um, it doesn't look like people have just extraordinary amounts of books, but if you have, you know, a bunch of books. It'd be nice if you would wait until the folks with fewer books, what once we're done with the uh, once we're done with the Q and A, that they uh, <laughs> that the folks with few, fewer books get them signed huh. first, just in the interest of fairness. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm gonna real fast introduce Jeff Vandermeer and Vandermeer, Richard Bottom. Very happy to have them here, and they're gonna tell you a little bit about Steampunk. Okay, thank Thanks, you very guys. much. Just want to thank Borderlands. <laughs> Thank Borderlands and also thank uh, Richard Bottoms, who is one of the uh, driving forces behind the Steampunk Convention, which is why we're uh, here in, uh, in San Francisco to begin with. Uh, and thanks also to uh, Tachyon, uh, Rena and uh, Jacob and uh, Jill, uh, who are, are just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm just going to say a few words about uh, the anthology and about uh, uh, what Steampunk is uh, in terms of the, the fiction. and. Um, then um, we're going to do a few very short just samplings from the anthology and then uh, kind of have a discussion about steampunk here. And I believe uh, um, uh, that you have some uh, news that you're going to be sharing at some point. So. Sure. Um, <laughs> he says very enigmatically. And then we'll open it up to questions at the end. Um, so, uh, yeah, we edited this uh, steampunk anthology. And uh, steampunk, in case you didn't know, is a combination of a few different things. It's... Uh, in part, uh, this um, thing that John Clute calls an Edisonade, which is uh, from the 1850s, uh, the idea of his uh, inventor as hero, uh, inventing steam horses, other steam machines, and having basically having adventures in the Old West. And, and these, these stories were published in pulp magazines in, uh, in, in America in uh, the mid-1850s. Then you also, of course, have uh, Jules Verne and Wells's, uh, or H.G. Uh, Wells's. Uh, uh, influence and then uh, in the modern era, uh, K.W. Jader, uh, his Infernal De Devices is probably really the first steampunk uh, novel. Uh, in addition to uh, books like uh, Anubis Gates by Tim Powers and of course uh, Gibson and Sterling's The Difference Engine, uh, but I have distilled it down to something uh, a little less academic. Uh, I have an actual steampunk equation, and the steampunk equation reads as follows. <laughs> Mad scientist inventor plus invention, in parentheses, steam times airship or metal man, in end parentheses, divided by Baroque stylings times pseudo-Victorian setting plus adventure equals steampunk. So, And that's actually an uh, <laughs> equation that uh, John Coulthard, who designed the uh, Thackeray T. Lambshead Pocket Guide to Eccentric mm -hmm. and Discredited Diseases, uh, has uh, done up as the, uh, in a design for... Uh, 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 kind of a, a writing book, a notebook uh, that the uh, company's going to put out next year. It's a really amazing Baroque design. So, um, I wanted to just uh, start out by uh, maybe 
getting to the basics, which is uh, introducing ourselves uh, and um, talking about how we got into steampunk. Uh, for me, uh, first of all, it's uh, something that I, I read first when I was in my, my uh, early 20s. And I did read um, Anubis Gates by Tim Powers, which is probably the one that, that I love the most. And um, over the years, I've written a few stories that could be considered steampunk, including um, a story called Fixing Hanover, which is an extraordinary engines edited by Nick Gievers, which is, uh, is uh, out from Solaris. Um, also, and I don't know if this is common knowledge yet, but um, Jake Von Slatt and I uh, are, who's, uh, he's the head of like, this thing called the Steampunk Workshop. He's part of the Maker Movement. He does all these very cool uh, kind of Baroque um, steampunk objects. Uh, he and I are doing a uh, book on the steampunk subculture for artisan books. Um, they do a lot of really great coffee table books. They also do Bad Cats, if you may have seen that. But uh, <laughs> our book will not be in the style of Bad Cats. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from uh, with steampunk. And I thought I would uh, turn it over to um, my comrades on this panel to, to introduce themselves and also kind of tell uh, what their take is on steampunk to start. So, Anne? Um, I'm Anne Vandermeer. And um, before co-editing the steampunk anthology with my husband, we also edited an anthology called New Weird, also with Tachyon. And um, I am also the fiction editor for Weird Tales magazine, which, by the way, is celebrating 85 years it's the oldest uh, fantasy magazine in the world, and I am only the second female editor they've ever had. Second in 85 years. So that's really something for, for me to be proud of. And uh, awesome. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, 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 that's what that was, is two punk bumps. But um, <laughs> Jeff and I had a great time when we were researching steampunk. Um, as many of you may be aware, most of the uh, more classic steampunk stories are actually novels. So it was, it was quite a lot of research that we had to do to find short fiction that we could put together. And we wanted to find work that was diverse enough that would be interesting to put together so that you could see steampunk coming from a lot of different points of view. And while we were working on this particular anthology, that's when we were introduced to a lot of the steampunk communities that were out there, which at that time we did not know existed. So once we, we um, were introduced to them, we became very interested in what they were doing and started doing a lot of um, things together. So uh, one of the stories actually that's in here was a reprint from Steampunk Magazine. I don't know if y'all are aware of that, but it's a magazine that you can get online, steampunkmagazine.com, and it was an amazing story that we added to this collection. So I was um, very excited to learn that in addition to the fiction, there was actually an entire community surrounded with the steampunk philosophy. And with that, I'd like to turn over to Richard to talk about the steampunk philosophy. Good evening. My name is Richard Bottoms. I am, along with Ariane Wolf, the creator of the California Steampunk Convention, the only dedicated steampunk convention in the world. And thanks to the assistance of folks like the Vandermeers and others, we knocked it out of the park and uh, we're going to do it again next year. Uh, further announcements at the end of the uh, presentation here. Steampunk. Two things got me into steampunk. One I remembered, one I did not remember until I uh, was watching Showtime or whatever uh, last week. The first one was, of course, the Wild Wild West, the real one, 
with uh, <laughs> from 66, 67, I believe. And yes, I wanted to be James West. Uh, I loved that show, and Dr. Loveless was like the best villain ever. The, the show just, just, it just rocked. I really, really, really loved it. But there's something else that I didn't remember, and that was seeing Sidney Portier in Duel at Diablo. Uh, that was just on, on, on the screen last week, and I saw him in those clothes, and I said, I must have seen this when I was that age back in 66, 67, and said, if anybody can look that cool, I want to look that cool. So when steampunk started, started uh, uh, getting noticed again, started bubbling up, I decided that this is the uh, recreation, this is the historical recreation thing that I could wholeheartedly get into, and here's why. Uh, it represents to me a potentially positive turn in history that a lot of negative things that uh, came about after Reconstruction and after the Civil War might not have happened. And I actually can see myself as I could be exactly the person I am now in 1880 or 1890 being a scientist or an adventurer or an entrepreneur if circumstances were slightly different, and even if history was not changed at all, if I was Dexter Garvey, uh, Prince Dexter Garvey of Liberia with diplomatic immunity, I could still roam the West and have adventures and be part of the, 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 the type of works that are represented in steampunk. Uh, I do this because I like it. I do it because it's fun. I do it because, frankly, I look good in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, I like steampunk because, uh, show of hands, how many people have transporters in their garage? <laughs> no? Working ones? Working transporters. Uh, no. Warp engines? No. Lightsabers? Darn, none of that stuff exists, but watches do. And steam locomotives do, and airships do, and the clothes do, and the music do. The music does. The stuff exists, it's about things that people can wear and do and enjoy in this time period, and that's why it's fun, and that's why I'm here. Okay. Um, before we go on to, to more discussion, um, this is the part where we quiz the audience. Um, we're going to read uh, four paragraphs from the Steampunk Anthology, and uh, we're going to give you some multiple choice uh, possibilities as to who might have written uh, these particular paragraphs. Um, and if you get it wrong... Um, Nothing happens bad, don't worry. <laughs> Good answer, yes. <laughs> yeah, but just to give you a, a small sampling from the book, and then we'll continue with our conversation. So if you want to read this one and give them Can they read that one? Mm -hmm. Okay. Don't tell them it's wrong. <laughs> Each ship was a thousand feet long. Each had a hull as strong as steel. Each bristled with artillery and great grenades which could be dropped upon their enemies. Each ship moved implacably through the sky, keeping pace with its mighty fellows. Each was dedicated to exacting fierce vengeance upon the upstarts who had sought to question the power of those it served. A shoal of monstrous flying sharks confident that they controlled the skies and from the skies, the land. Okay, so I'm gonna give you the multiple choice of who you think wrote that. A, Michael Moorcock, B, James Blaylock, or C, Karl Marx? 
That's it. Come on, guys. I'm going to go with Karl Marx. Because <laughs> that's the coolest no, answer. Wrong. <laughs> wrong. I don't think he, I don't think he wrote that. Blaylock? No. It was Morcock. Yes. 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 Very good. That's Very it. Good. That's it. Okay. Read the next I'll one? read the next one. Okay. All right. This one's relatively short, as I recall. I need you to build me a clown, said Reve. Sueño interrupting Dr. Cosimo Ferrante at his work. Is that William Gibson, Jay Lake, or Danielle Steele? <laughs> oh, you're leaving sick. now. You simply. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I thought the, the mention of Danielle Steele had <laughs> driven you off. <laughs> oh, Let's see. Building clowns. I say Jay Lake. Yeah. You're correct. That would, of course, have to be Jay Lake because Jay Lake is insane. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way, I hasten to add. He's a good friend. The cannon to which you, you refer fired one projectile containing three men, two dogs, and a handful of chickens towards the moon on one occasion more than 20 years ago. Firing that one comparatively lightweight missile, one time only, required 400,000 pounds of fulminating cotton. What you are proposing would seem to involve the firing of an immense number of much heavier projectiles on a daily basis over a period of many years, possibly a century or more. I doubt there is that much explosive in the world, and even if there was, the cost would be prohibitive. Daniel okay. Steele. <laughs> and your choices are Tim Powers, Molly Brown or Jake Von Slatt? Ooh. A puzzler. The unthinkable Molly Brown? It actually is Molly Brown. Yes. But you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> and one last one. The only solution lay in finding the real Queen Victoria, a creature no less fabulous than her salamandrine counterpart. Where or where could she be? In the three days since their visit to Horse Apples, Cowperwaith had racked his brains for any likely burrow she might have found, all to no avail. Even at this moment, Cowperwaith had McGrouty out scouring the city for any possible clue, however wild and far-fetched. A wave of sadness and nostalgia crossed over him. Would he ever see his amphibious progeny again, or would she remain forever immured inside Buckingham Palace, a slave to the needs of the state? Is that, <laughs> is that uh, Dr. Buckwaldo Mudthumper, Alan Moore, or Paul DiFilippo? <laughs> yes, because he is also insane in a slightly different way, but... Uh, but in any event, that gives you kind of a sampling of some of the uh, more playful and, and uh, mechanically steampunky parts of the book. Um, getting back to our discussion, um, and based on kind of some of the things that you said, uh, Bruce Sterling in a recent uh, article, I believe it was in Wired Magazine or on Wired.com, seemed to indicate that steampunk could become a movement in the sense of a social force, uh, perhaps even a political force in a way. Um, uh, do you, either of you think that's true? Is steampunk just entertainment and uh, and kind of a way for people to, to have a sense of community, or or do you think it is something more? I absolutely think that it is. 
it is something that can be more than just a social activity. I definitely see it being a movement that could be a movement for, for betterment. You've, the punk side of the steampunk is the revolution side. That's where you want to go against what's going on and try and make things better. And one of the things that I have found out about the steampunk community is the getting back to the roots, the being able to make things yourself, to be, to be a self-sustaining community. And I see that definitely as a, as a political movement. And I see it as a very positive political movement. I also see a strong sense of environmentalism through the steampunk communities, and that can only be a good thing. One of the things that surprised me when Jeff and I were doing the steampunk anthology is that we were getting asked to do interviews for various different, different organizations. Wired.com, well, that made sense. But then the Weather Channel wanted to interview us. And so, of course, I said, the Weather Channel? Why would the Weather Channel be interested in, in the steampunk anthology? Well, the reason had to do with, with all the environmental concerns that the steampunk community has embraced. So definitely, yes, it is. Uh, I can see that being a political movement in the future, and I can see it being mainstreamed. Um, the company that put on the, the uh, steampunk convention, Steam Powered Events, Inc., is built around a philosophy of identifying small groups of people who want to hang out together and do things and then connect them using the technology that exists today. The convention actually was designed, designed to be successful if only the people in the Bay Area came. The fact that uh, folks from outside the Bay Area came to it, that was just icing on the cake. So I think in answer to your question, there are parts of steampunk and the neo-Victorian movement that are very local, very make your own stuff, build your own stuff, grow your own stuff, find localized connections with people, and then have those groups communicate or connect to folks around the block, across the world, or whatever. But yes, I think there are opportunities for folks to get better at knowing your, 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 your friends and neighbors by virtue of steampunk. I put it together uh, in part because as much as I make my living writing software, or at least did, and make my living from technology, uh, communication via electronic means, email, uh, text messages, or whatever, it's a way of doing business, it's a way of getting things done. But I wanted to put something together that would actually make people have to physically come to some place and meet each other and actually talk. It uh, doesn't happen e enough these days. And, and Richard, I have a follow-up question for you. I was just curious, uh, what was your, your kind of entry point into steampunk? When did you become a, aware of it, and was there a spark or catalyst that got you into this? Well, uh, you're in a bookstore, and frankly, I always wanted to own one. Uh, I, I always wanted to be a, a writer beyond being a nonfiction writer. The catalyst for actually jumping into it was my partner, Ariane Wolf wondering, gee, wouldn't it be cool if somebody actually put on a dedicated steampunk convention and my uh, inclination for somebody to mention a good idea and turn it into a website and or a business in 24 hours. Um, <laughs> I jumped wholeheartedly into it in the last six months, but I've had clothes like this for a while because I was interested in other recreations and other societies just I now have a vest on and a slightly different shirt than you would likely see me. I'm a musician, mm -hmm. so I perform on stage. Mm -hmm. I'm used to getting dressed up, and this just fit. The, uh, I, I love the clothes, 
and to bring back that feeling of being a kid in 1967 and watching the Wild Wild West and wanting to be Gene, James West is like hell yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm in I'm in this with with both feet. And uh, you've both now uh, experienced. Uh, either one of the first or the first steampunk conventions has been held, right? We Period? are the only dedicated right. steampunk right. convention in, in, in the world. Yeah. So uh, we, we made a commitment to it yeah. uh, uh, based on that fact that if, if steampunk is really a movement, if it's really that popular, yeah. it ought to have its own place. Uh, I, uh, I've got a project in the works. I'd love to make Vallejo the steampunk capital of the world. It's, it's, it's got Victorian architecture. It's got access by ferry to this city. And frankly, <coughs> we, we actually have a project like that in the, in the works. Mm -hmm. So my question, I'll start with Anne, is um, having, and, and both of you have seen the steampunk convention, obviously, from a different side, because you were actually organizing it. You were part of it. What were your impressions? Your, what surprised you, actually being at, at a steampunk convention? What delighted you? What you just what 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 were your impressions? Well, I think the first thing is when we came in Friday night, they were having the the costume ball, and I, I shouldn't say costume because people were wearing those clothes the whole weekend. But the amazing creativity that went into the clothing that everyone was wearing—it wasn't so much a costume; it was just these amazing things. We saw a group of people that were dressed up as steampunk ghostbusters and steampunk ghosts, and that was amazing. <laughs> and then I saw this one woman that had a top hat that she had made herself out of some kind of metal, I don't know if it was aluminum or what, but the top hat some, had some kind of mechanism that had um, a teacup come out of the top of it. Because you know, the steampunk community, a lot of it is about the tea and the crumpets as well Very as you know, everything else. But one of the things that also struck me about it that I truly enjoyed is everybody seemed to be in a good mood and everybody was polite to everyone else. There was no people bumping into each other. People, there was none of the things that you sometimes see at other genre conventions where you have rude people or anything. There was just so much politeness. And I think that that's part of the steampunk philosophy too, in a sense. Well, I think it goes to some, uh, part of what I alluded to earlier in that you're dealing with a genre of stuff that folks have had a hundred and maybe 120, 30, 40 years to figure out how all this stuff works. So it's, it's not like, how do I make a corset? Uh, how do I build something powered by steam? How do I build something that represents something that's powered by steam? This is this is technology that the folks have had a lot of time to find the best pieces of it and apply it to either their fantasy representations of what they're doing, or I mean, people actually used to walk around in this stuff all the time. I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't be in my Imperial Stormtrooper costume all the time. <laughs> but this would be what you'd go in your closet, you would take out and put on, and you would go to work or go to school or walk down the street or hang out with your friends. So the stuff is designed to be comfortable and lived in because people were comfortable in it and lived in it, except for corsets. <laughs> oh, there was oh, one yeah, woman yeah. that had this amazing course that she had made herself, and she actually had bent spoons over her breasts. It was just beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Because everybody must have a corset with spoons. <laughs> so, so I guess, Anna, now I have a question for you in your role as a Weird Tales editor, which is to say, are you seeing a lot more uh, steampunk uh, stories? Is there like a second wave now of steampunk? Uh, 
Well, I'm starting to see some steampunk stories, but I'm not being overwhelmed by them. I'm actually seeing more zombie stories than I am seeing steampunk stories. I think zombies is the next big thing. And also, this is, I think, the 40-year anniversary of Night of the Living Dead. I think it was, what, last week or two weeks ago, something like that. So I am seeing uh, an upsurge of zombie stories. Now, I'm, I'm going to now uh, ask a question that uh, Anne, as moderator on a panel at the convention, asked um, when I was on the panel as one of the, the participants. It, it was kind of a, a question that stumped a few people, including myself. So now it's your turn. <laughs> um, what, you know, steampunk is about technology. It is about retrofitting technology. Um, what new gadget would you like to see invented and why? And what invention or technology do you wish you had invented yourself? And then you ask me first. Why don't, why don't we let Richard answer that one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice one. All right, what was part one of the question? Uh, what new gadget would you like to see invented and why? I would like to see something invented that would... Uh, personal water travel. Uh, uh, the ferry systems around mm -hmm. here require very, very, very large technology. I think something on a smaller basis would not only be useful, but uh, uh, knowing the people that I know, somebody could probably actually build the thing. And uh, what uh, invention do you wish you had invented yourself? One that already exists or yep. something I could pull out of my head? That, uh, something that already exists. <coughs> the Tesla coil. Ah. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot think of, I cannot think of anything. I mean, everything I would think that I would want to to have something invented, like. Do you want an easier question? <laughs> <coughs> How about an invention that when your husband is a turkey, it smacks him? <laughs> like that. Would that be a good invention? That invention already exists. It's oh, it's <laughs> and me? You use it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, so a question for you and then a question for uh, Richard. Uh, in this anthology, um, not to put you on the spot because I know we, we like all of these stories, but is there a particular one that, that's close to your heart or that you particularly enjoy and that you still think of fondly? Well, actually there's two stories in here that, that I'm absolutely in love with and they're completely opposite or completely different from each other. One of them is the uh, Molly Brown story, the Celine Gardening Society, because it just, I just love it. I read it and it just makes me laugh and it just makes me feel good. And the other one is the Joe Lansdale story, which is the, one of the most horrific, <laughs> intense stories, and I love it for that reason, too. So they're, like, completely opposite. Right. And, well, I'm going to have to look it up because I read oh, okay. so many things. Because uh, I get asked about this, and I... Uh, essential sequential steampunk. Uh, I'm a, I consider myself a newspaper man, mm. and so I'm also always more inclined towards people talking about reality mm -hmm. than about um, uh, about the fiction stories. I, I have promised myself for years that I was going to write something in fiction, and I've, I've managed to do that in steam in uh, in uh, screenplays. As a matter of fact, I'm working on this screenplay for a steampunk version of Pygmalion, which I will happily tell you about a little <laughs> bit later. Uh, but I believe I, I'm much more comfortable and have a lot more experience in writing about reality. So I, I like a story that talked about what was going on as opposed to the fiction stuff. Uh, well, I was going to ask you if there was a book or anything that you had read on steampunk or, or, or anything related to the Victorian era that you would recommend. Difference Engine, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. 
Um, uh, then a question for both of you. Uh, put on your predictive hats, and I'll, I'll go with Richard first. Uh, where do you think steampunk will be in another five, ten years? Where do you see it going? I see it as, like most things, there will be a wave for a while, and then it will it will <laughs> will die back down. But with steampunk, it will, I think, die back down to a level of maintaining interest for the people because they are doing the recreation stuff anyway. They are enjoying creating the fashions. The folks who are tinkering together the clockwork materials are going to continue to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the folks who are doing the larger steam projects, the actual real, I can build a locomotive, frankly, they, we don't want to be called steampunks because we know that steampunk will essentially be, be, will be fad-like in nature and eventually will die down. And We don't want to have our work seen as something that's a fad. So in partial answer to your question, it might not be as high in the public's consciousness mm -hmm. five years from now as it is, but I can pretty much guarantee you everybody who uh, showed up at the convention mm -hmm. will still be doing something like this five years from now as opposed to the folks who are still running around like Neo or Spike. Five years from now, they probably won't be Neo anymore or Spike. Uh, and, ter and did you ask a, f a further part of that question? Uh, I don't think so. Then I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and? I think my answer is going to be a little bit different. I see steampunk, well, right now it seems to be all the rage and it's all over the place. And I see five years from now it's going to be so mainstream that you're going to see steampunk outfits and Hot Topic in the mall. And you're going to see that the, the teens and the tweens, you know, ah, dressed okay. as steampunkers. I mean, That's what I'm going to I really see it going. It's going to go down to the younger people. Then, then it's probably a good idea that I'm opening up Dexter Garvey's Emporium in Vallejo the first week of December <laughs> and uh, working on nightclubs and whatnot. So well, have children's clothes yeah. or tweeners. Tweeners. Will do. Uh, um, I, I remember the second piece that I want to talk about, and it relates, and it is Pygmalion. I've wanted to be a filmmaker forever, and we're doing a very small budget uh, a movie uh, directed by Perry Teo from uh, the Gene Generation. And, excuse me, I get the script done, and he says yes, Anthony Stewart head as uh, Henry Higgins. And so five years from now, I see us as Pygmalion three. so yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just actually wanted to add that um, in, in, in um, talking to Jake Von Slatt from the uh, Steampunk Workshop um, and seeing the kinds of things that they make, the, the kind of functional things that they make, I, I think it might have a longevity in that area, along with this rebirth, I think, where you see a lot of writers turning back to steampunk, using it as kind of a toolkit this time. It's not really a movement now. It's more or less, here are all these cool things I can deploy for urban fantasy or for whatever else that they, they want to use it for. Uh, and so it's this interesting toolkit of, of devices and, and a way of looking at technology that I think I think is is, uh, is interesting for writers. Well, um, it also, yeah. it because of the nature of technology mm -hmm. now, there are things that, like the flash mob thing of, let's all show up mm -hmm. in, at Powell mm -hmm. Street mm -hmm. in your steampunk garb and uh, do mm -hmm. a little bit of guerrilla theater for a half hour and then ju just disappear. So there are things mm -hmm. that er other mm -hmm. science fiction fads, movements uh, that didn't exist, exist that mm -hmm. will help the longevity of, 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 of steampunk in a way that others others didn't. Yeah. Now, and and uh, um, this weekend and, 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 and in general, I have not been saying much about uh, steampunk fashion. Uh, the one time I did, uh, it was on Australian public radio. Uh, they asked, well, what's steampunk fashion like? And at the time, I hadn't had much experience with the culture. And so 
the first thing out of my mouth was, well, you know, it's mostly mechanical corsets, uh, <laughs> which doesn't actually make any sense. <laughs> um, but uh, they then followed up by asking, well, what are you wearing? Um, which is a very strange question to be asked when you're on the telephone <laughs> being interviewed on radio. <laughs> kind of the thing you, you rather you think that they would want to find out ahead of time before they ask the question, right? So, um, but, uh, so I'm, I'm curious to learn more about the fashion, and we did this weekend. Uh, two last questions before we open it up to the audience. Um, First, for, for Anne, a uh, question. Uh, what was the worst part of working with me on this anthology? <laughs> These kinds of questions. <laughs> Putting me on the spot in public. That's the worst part. Okay. <laughs> slap him. Yeah, I should slap him. I'll get that machine right away. And, and, and Richard, I just wanted to, to give you the opportunity to talk more about your plans for the convention and everything else that you're doing. Uh, sure. Uh, very quickly, we're doing it again next year. We're working on nailing down the date. It will. Uh, I, I won't announce the month yet because that's not set in stone. And so all I can tell you is it's happening next year. I can tell you that Ariane Wolf is in total charge of the convention so everything that went screwy haywire or not quite uh <laughs> came across as with as it was supposed to i am not kidding when i say it is my fault and uh no really seriously i uh, just there are things that i do well i'm a salesman for crying out loud so uh Arianne is actually in in total operational control for 2009 so i guarantee you if you like this one or if you are, have heard buzz about how good it was she will be in, in a position to make next year's even better. Uh, how many people here are fans of Larry Niven? Uh, Ring World Congress 2009. Uh, Ring World Congress 2010 for sure, but we're doing 2009 so we can get the bugs out. And uh, but we would definitely want to celebrate the 40th anniversary of, of Ring World. Uh, basically, I'm looking to enjoy doing things in steampunk. Uh, I will very likely start my own steampunk band. Uh, I recently was on stage for the first time in 17 years, and I liked it. What do you play? What do you play? I play bass, guitar, keyboards, bass. and bass allegedly sing. Uh, uh, so I'm working on steampunk musician. Okay. Awesome. And uh, before I open it for questions, I will say if you do uh, buy the anthology tonight, uh, and I can't promise they'll all be as elaborate as this, we will draw uh, dirigibles in your, uh, in your, uh, if you'll be patient. Uh. <laughs> My husband will be drawing them because I cannot draw. Yeah, and she'll be writing down your names because for some reason he it's signings spell. now. I can't spell. I don't know. What, it's some kind of post-traumatic signing stress uh, disorder or something. But, um, but anyway, uh, any questions from the audience? I hope there are. Obama's ahead in Ohio, yes? How many people did you get this weekend? A little over uh, 500 with walk-ups, wow. which would fit exactly within our uh, within the model that I put together for what we call cohort relationship marketing, to take it to you know, crass business terms. But it, it absolutely fit with exactly what I wanted to hit for how this is supposed to work. You broke even? No comment. Uh, but let's say I achieved the goals of awareness and success that I wanted to for this year. Folks know who we are. Uh, Abney Park came to town and killed. Platform came one came to town and killed. The convention was a complete and utter success, as far as I know. The folks who came here. It was. I've heard nothing but good feedback from Jake Von Slatt and Greg Broadmore came all the way from New Zealand to uh, show off his ray guns and is uh, probably 
halfway home right now. Uh, so everything that I wanted to do for the convention, I did. And uh, I liked it. Yeah. Other question? Justin? This is Christopher Richards. Do you see any creative collaboration or synergy between the steampunk community and the Burning Man artist community? All the same people. Uh, short version. Uh, the Never Was Hall was at the Steampunk convention. The Never Was Hall literally goes out to Burning Man. Why? Because the stuff that they build actually works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about that because I think the first time, the only group that was maybe a couple of years ago was the Maker Fair. Yeah. In San Mateo. And we were around the counter at a convention. I was like, God, I really want to go to this. And then there was a showing of the Steampunk Treehouse here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I spent like a fruitless half hour trying to. All right, well, uh, uh, but put it. They, they all seem to kind of at some point now have kind of all tied into each other. Each one is sort of a different facet of a different aspect of steampunk. They always were yeah. all the same people. It's just some of them are more into really into the technology. Mm -hmm. Some are yeah. into making clothes and others. Yeah. But on the subject of things like the Never Was Hall, Steampunk Treehouse and whatnot, Solano Fairgrounds, hopefully uh, early next year, another mini uh, celebration. Only this time we get to bring some of these steam-powered stuff to actually be out there mm -hmm. steam-powered, working on it. Yeah, and, and, and that, that does bring up one thing I thought was kind of interesting. And, you know, we read a lot more excerpts at, at the panel we did over the weekend, but um, and we read, like, the very technological things about, like, the clockwork and, you know, the stuff in the stories. And um, it struck me as kind of interesting because you had these stories and the novels which then kind of influenced in a general way movies and comics which then influenced in part the subculture which then influenced the maker part of the subculture to create um, objects that are in some ways physical manifestations right. from the stuff that is in the original uh, generation of steampunk stories so i find that kind of interesting actually I think everyone by now probably either via bling or in the yeah right seen the steampunk computer right right, box, right which is right. a thing of yeah. it's just so yeah. gorgeous and then this weekend at world fantasy Well, well, there is an interesting aspect. I think, I mean, in going through like the dealer's room there and um, <coughs> and, and the seeing the costumes and, and all the maker stuff too, it seemed that one of the appeals of steampunk was that it was focused enough that you could call it steampunk, but general enough that you could mix and match for your own persona, how you wanted to interact with it. And I think that's part of the appeal uh, as well, um, that it's both specific and general enough at the same time, which is not true of, of everything. Well, another big so. pat on the back for Ariane. The, one of the reasons that the dealer's room mm. was such a success is, and this required us to pass up some money, uh, we required that all the dealers in there actually have steampunk stuff. Uh, if you've been to conventions, you will see lots of uh, uh, dealers who have got things that are, what in the world has this got to do crap. with whatever? It's yes. Crap. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the crap. Okay, so uh, we, we avoided the crap for, for this one. So the dealer's room had, it must be directly related to steampunk, or unfortunately, uh, at least from my standpoint of paying the bills, uh, you cannot attend. Yeah, it was pretty amazing, the dealer's room. So. Any other questions? That'd be something. How much relationship? I know, I know the the term steampunk comes out of science fiction, yeah. uh, but how much relationship do you actually see between 
uh, people who identify themselves as steampunks and the literature of, of science fiction, you know, the, the, the early stuff, the Invisiscape. I is, think is there a yeah. direct correlation? There will be because people seem to be picking up the steampunk anthology and the subculture specifically to learn about that. I don't think th I think a, a certain proportion or a percentage, I would say at least fifty percent, don't don't really know that much about the core literature. They might have heard of one or two books or read one or two books, um, but they found I th a lot of the comments we got at the in the dealers room when we were signing were that this was a great introduction. You know, because a lot of these people also have novels out there, so it's kind of like a sampler, so that they could then go on and, and learn more. Which is and we did have quite a few people come up and yeah. ask what we would recommend beyond this yeah. this anthology, what novels we would recommend, and of course there's a list in here as well, and what are the short fiction? Because one of the things with doing an anthology like this, of course, is you're limited to what you can put in here. You can't mm -hmm. put everything in. There's just not enough room. So they were asking, well, what did yeah. you read that you wanted to put in that you couldn't put in? So yeah. they were interested beyond yeah. what we had already selected, everything else they could put their hands and of course on. And that's have, a good thing. Yeah, and of course we have lists in the back of the book, too, of uh, recommended reading lists and things like that that are very helpful for someone who wants that, that kind of initial background. So well, I think there's also the reality that, frankly, there are a lot of folks who don't yeah. read anything but yep. comic books. Yep. Or they get all, the only thing that they get for their entertainment yep. comes through their MySpace page or their the YouTube videos that they are creating. So I think, in this case, while the literature is important and provides the backbone for what's happening with steampunk, there's a lot of folks out there who will never pick up this book, unfortunately. But the reality is, if you want to translate what you're doing for them to see it, you're going to have to get it in, say, the latest issue of X-Men, which has a steampunk-related story in it, so that the folks can do, do that. So we have to make it possible for the writers who are creating the stories to see their works translated into the medium where the folks will be able to consume it as movies, as something online, so that uh, the culture continues to grow and refresh itself and then bring in the people who have more of a literate sense of what you're doing. I think that's 60 bucks a pop to come to a convention. There's a, there is a swath of folks who couldn't come because frankly they couldn't afford it that had they been there, they probably would have benefited from it, but uh, we had to set it at a price point that we could afford. Hopefully, we'll be able to do day passes next year, and we'll see a, a, a slightly younger crowd able to come and experience what you guys are doing. And I would agree, actually, that um, the driving force is not in the literature, but interestingly enough, just as this stuff is kind of being rediscovered by the subculture, the subculture is what has now kind of sparked or fired what, can, what writers in the last couple of years have been doing in steampunk mm -hmm. um, in, in the literature. So, so that kind of energy in other media mm -hmm. is actually, I think, firing you know, the imaginations of people who are working in fiction. Oh, for the historical for period. The historical That's probably what, yeah. what period or you mean in terms of the fashion or the whole thing, yeah. Civil War to pre-World War II, uh, partly yeah. because of the airship. But what brings it that far up is yeah. the airship phenomena. Yeah. Well, you did hear that somebody has started up an airship service mm. at five hundred yes. bucks a pop. It's pretty pricey, but boy. Yeah. <laughs> to get all dressed, to get a group of twelve all dressed up in all of those airships. Yeah. I'm very much hoping uh, if, if if the great photo op. <laughs> Should right. have the convention in a huge airship. 
<laughs> oh, there, there, there's a possibility. It could uh, be so problematic. But... Very, very quickly, who can guess why we're launching V for Vallejo tomorrow? Thank you. Um, I am. This is long-term stuff. I'm really hoping that we will be able to turn Vallejo into steampunk capital of the world because there is because of the Solano Fairgrounds, because of the ferry service, it is entirely possible that that airship service could be extended and come to Vallejo so that people disembark to. I mean, we have a whole bunch of them, but uh, the the this is one of the first science fiction things that folks can make real. That's the reason mm -hmm. I think, excuse me, it's got some serious legs and will exist in whatever nature, whether it's on the cover of Wired anymore, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe not, but it's going to be around because it is stuff that is fun and mm -hmm. is real, it is family friendly. It's friendly to, uh, to both genders, frankly, mm -hmm. because science yep. fiction tends to be a very hard and brittle and uh, guy-oriented, let's blow stuff up kind of stuff. And frankly, I like watching movies where they blow stuff up because it's like really cool watching stuff blow up, but that doesn't necessarily make for good entertainment and for a good culture. So let's look at the things, the tea, the, uh, the, 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 the manners and the music. That's what makes this stuff great. Yeah, I also think it may well be uh, the wave of the future to have these kind of niche subgenres that have a note of pop culture attached to them as a way to do a very effective convention within science fiction fantasy, for example. Um, and that may be the wave of the future rather than a general science fiction fantasy convention. Uh, questions? Yeah. yeah. So, Jeff, as a fiction writer, yeah. so I have a question for you. So, um, so, you know, there's the kind of like very obvious trappings of like, okay, this is a clockwork thing. But yeah, one yeah. thing I always find really interesting in steampunk is the, the, you know, it's like the literary postmodernism of you're also taking this sort of Victorian articulation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's what I think good right. steampunk does. And you're saying things in this way that, you know, that's in the way that people wrote. I mean, it's not necessarily like everything's written in it's like an echo of an echo in a way. It has to be. But yeah. you're doing some, at least it's, you know, it, it's, so I'm curious how <coughs> you find it, like, not your own Edison-made story, but, yeah. but how, do you, how do you find it, like, the aesthetic of it? In, as well, I, I think that's something that, that writers in the future in Steampunk are really going to have to think about, because if you think about Victorian times, mm -hmm. Um, you, they're actually, you know, part of that at least, you know, is a time of like, even just to take one example, where disease was thought of quite differently because you didn't have vaccines, penicillin, and things like that. And you don't really see something like that, that kind of realism in most steampunk stories. That, that stuff gets filtered out. And I think that if there's going to be a new, like, movement or revolution within steampunk uh, literature without it just being a toolkit that people use, they're going to have to address that kind of nitty gritty stuff. Uh, in fact, uh, it was interesting because the story I wrote for Extraordinary Engines, Fixing Hanover, is actually kind of dealing with what you're talking about, thinking about those questions, because it's about an inventor who can't escape the implications of what he's done, which is to say he's provided air power to a nation that he's working for uh, as an engineer uh, in a world where no one else has that, and they use it to basically enslave the rest of the world in an empire. Uh, and, and the message of the story is you can never really escape the implications of having done that. Uh, and it's kind of an anti-steampunk story. It's kind of like saying, well, let's look at the other side of this. Um, and so I think less 
it being people playing with a postmodern sense, I almost feel like they're going to have to get back to a more earnest sense of realism with this stuff if they want to do something truly original. Um, because other stuff is really fun, um, and I love reading it. Um, but again, it, it isn't all that realistic. Sometimes I think of uh, steampunk as being kind of new weirds, like a kinder, more polite, uh, well-behaved cousin, you know. So <laughs> it's kind of, you know. Well, well, can I ask a question of both of you as, yeah. as editors, as an attempted writer uh, of, of fiction? What would be the difference, uh, if you can uh, address it, between fiction that you can say this really is steampunk as opposed to a writer, okay, steampunk's hot, so I will put the people who are in my story now and put them in Victorian dress and mm -hmm. take what used to be UE helicopters and turn them into uh, uh, little flying copters because steampunk is hot. How do you determine mm -hmm. uh, which of the fiction that you get in actually fits this genre and isn't just say someone yeah. who's a hack saying okay this is what's hot yeah. i'll write for that well sometimes yeah. you can tell i mean sometimes i can tell it's just like an instinct with me if somebody writes a story that's a four story that they're writing specifically for a specific market or if they're writing something that's just coming out of their heart something that they really mean to write and i can usually tell because i've had people in the past and not just with steampunk but just in general in the past write a story that they think will fit what i want rather than something that's from them and i can tell and it just doesn't ring true there's some there's some false note in it so even if you take if you take a story and you try to retrofit it and make it work for the steampunk market so you've done a few things you've thrown a few tricks in there um i think a good editor will be able to see that it rings false yeah, I, I think it, it it goes beyond authenticity. A good a good writer who's writing from the heart can fake just about anything. I mean, they can fake the Victorian dialogue, whatever. It doesn't even matter if it really fits how they would have spoken back then. They can make you believe that's the way it was. But but you, there's something you can't fake, and it's hard to quantify. Mm. But as an editor, especially when like Anne reads so much, you know, she gets like what 20, 30 manuscripts a day or more. Wow. Um, you become predictive even from the first paragraph as to where a story is going, let alone, again, what she's saying. This It's not really quantifiable, but it, it, it's something that you just, over time, it's a feeling you get as to whether something's authentic or not. Uh, perhaps to put you on the spot, but uh, <laughs> uh, are there, is there literature or stories that you might suggest, g given what I mentioned earlier, that you've got a young population that isn't as literate as you are, who are seeing that steampunk is something they might want to learn Victorian manners, Victorian society. Is there literature that exists that you might suggest someone to read, research, get into so that they can actually, what, what, what went before? What should they be reading? Well. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't in there. Well, I mean, I think um, that's, a, that's a tough question. I mean, we. The thing is, there's, all these, there's also nonfiction in here that talks about pretty much everything yeah, else that, everything. that's been in steampunk. And, um, well, and things so like, uh, I'm like Wells or, or uh, yeah, all a, that a less well-known stuff. Well -known stuff they should definitely read that. I definitely think they should yeah. read Jules Verne. Because as far as I'm concerned, he's the first. There's also a lot of so lesser-known Verne stuff. And was translated into so yeah. many different languages. And then his work was made into movies. I mean, I think that, that he first made it popular in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then it became out of fashion. And it, you know, it's like a, psych, a cyclic thing. It always goes around. Well, it might be something you guys want. Might I don't, 
So my suggestion you might want to look into is for a lot of folks, uh, and I'll cop to some of this, is that they know about around the world in 80 days mm -hmm. and uh, they know about the time machine and they know about War of the Worlds and that yeah. might be 20, the extent 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Because they be movies. Exactly. So beyond yeah. that, it's like, okay, what else should I well, know about or be reading? Quite honestly, I mean, it, it's all in the surveys in the back of this. And uh -huh. I, mean, I can't really think of all so the names. So there is a reason. So, so pick up <laughs> the book for the... That's right, about. right. I mean, okay. list. So... And but one I mean, thing about with young people is you don't want to talk down to them and you don't want to dumb anything down for them. They will reach up for something that's more difficult for them. If you present it to them the right way. I mean, yeah. the, the whole idea of, well, you have to have something in a YA category to fit the teens. I mean, I think that if you give them something that's geared towards adults, they will reach for that. And I think that's really the goal. Mm -hmm. So like, one last question. Then. I yeah. totally see this. Like, I was thinking back, like, um, when we had our team post Like, I mean, that, I, yeah. Yeah, like like any yeah like like any percentage of, of I, teens. So I mentioned yeah. that I mentioned that on the panel in that I went to my junior prom. I found that the I had a crimson short that James West thing. I wore that to my junior prom. Wasn't quite so well received back then, uh, but I wore it anyway. So yeah, your time. yeah, time finally caught up. About time. <laughs> Well, um, thank you all for, for coming Woo! and uh, appreciate all the great questions. And that is like the coolest cat I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we'll be happy to, to sign books. I'm sure Richard will be happy to, to, to talk one on one with you about the Steampunk Con and if you stand around. So. Thank you for coming. Thank you. And thank you for being on the panel. It's great. Yeah, on, on Facebook, you promised the Steampunk Day. Oh my god. Don't don't believe everything that you believe. It's official. It's official? It's official. Barack Obama is now the president of the United States. We have a new president. I just got a well, I got a message from somebody. He's it looks like he's won Indiana too and Florida. He came back and he's won Indiana. He's won Florida. Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm from there. Yes! Well, that's a great way to end. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you for coming out and celebrating yeah. with us. And thanks to Rick Kleffel for setting all the uh, the up, too. So, uh, Jeff, can you check on You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.